Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. On this episode of Most Notorious, a 1920 double murder in Montana that sends a man to the gallows. But was he innocent? Iva knew that she needed to defend herself, so she had hit Florence with the axe, and Seth had tried to get the gun away from Florence. And and to me, this is one of the most interesting points that Seth notes that the part of the trigger mechanism gets caught on Florence Sprouse's hand and almost rips off her finger as he's trying to get it out of her hand so she won't shoot. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for joining me. My guest today is Kelly Suzanne Hartman. She is an artist, a historian, and curator of the Gallatin History Museum in Bozeman, Montana. And she is here to talk about her book, Murder on the Yellowstone Trail, The Execution of Seth Danner. Great to have you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Eric. So I want to start by asking you, um, it's a case that I've never heard of, a very interesting one, but one that I'm sure a lot of listeners haven't heard of before either. Where, when did you first come across this crime? Yeah, I actually work at the Gallatin History Museum, which used to be the old Gallatin County Jail. And when I first started work there, I was presented with walking past the original gallows mechanism that is still inside the building every day. And I think it was kind of a way of of wanting to know more about what had happened there. Um, I knew somebody had been executed, but I didn't know the story. We had a little bit about it, but not a whole lot. And for me, I think it was, uh, uh, I needed to reconcile what that man did um, to be able to walk past it every day, because it is a pretty grim reminder um, to to be near something like that on a daily basis. So that's what initially sparked my interest in it. Um, there There isn't a lot written about it or known about it. And I think that's also what sparked my interest is I'm, I like to write and, and research things that people haven't discussed a whole lot or um, things that I can I can find new material, new research on. 
So that's really what got me pulled into it. And as I started to do that research and learn more about the story and started to realize that there was potentially some doubt that Seth did not commit the murders um, and was wrongly executed, I think that's when I was, I really was like, somebody's got to write a book about this because there's obviously a lot more to the story than meets the eye. And that's when I, I kind of jumped in all the way and became, I guess, the expert on this particular murder, um, which I never saw coming in my career or life path at all. But here I am. Well, it's a nice surprise, right? Mm-hmm, definitely. Well, before I ask you about the subject of your book, I'm curious about your gallows <laughs> still. When was it built? I mean, it's not often that you get to go into a museum and, and see a turn-of-the-century gallows. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> um, the building was actually constructed in 1910. Um, they had a few prisoners that December, but it mostly started in 1911. So it was constructed with basically a metal platform that is built into a balcony level of the building. And it can be lifted up to become part of the railing. I think a lot of times they left it out just as kind of this warning. So from the, the room where you would get fingerprinted as you came in, you would look up and there, there it is. So I think it was kind of like to be scary. And of course, it being still part of the building, that it's just this little metal platform, which had a, would have had a rope um, to drop it, that there's, you know, it's just, it's constructed into the concrete. So it's always going to be there. Um, very different than most jails of that era, which would have just kind of went with a, a strange room with the wooden kind of platform. Um, there's not a whole lot that I've discovered about jails that use the metal ones, other than that it was built, um, originally constructed by the Diebold uh, Safe Company, and then sent here to be placed into the jail. And Seth is the only one that was executed on it. So it's it just makes it like that much more profound um, of a thing. And it, it was probably about 20 years after so 20 years prior, actually, to Seth's execution, there had been another one in the jail yard next door. And it was kind of that typical Old West, the whole town comes to watch type of a thing. And it's interesting to me that 20 years later, you have Seth's execution, which is done in kind of secret inside the building, a couple invited guests. It's just a very different feel to it. Um, like they revered this, that you're actually taking somebody's life. Um, versus the show that it used to be. Right, right. Yeah, a hanging used to be quite the spectacle in some places, for sure. Uh, so, uh, Seth Danner. Where did Seth Danner come from? What was his background? He originated from Kansas, um, spent pretty much the whole his whole youth in Kansas, um, he, his uncle died at a pretty young age and, uh, Seth ended up marrying his aunt. Um, she wasn't his aunt by blood, but his, his uncle's wife. And, um, I think that's kind of what started him thinking about moving around a little bit more before then uh, that's pretty much in his twenties. So before then he had just been a kind of farm hand, uh, worked sometimes in with machinery in Kansas 
and he would travel some with his his wife, his first wife, and then she died of appendicitis um, again at a, a fairly young age, and that's when Seth uh, took basic custody of um, his his niece, <laughs> which or of his cousin. I'm sorry. It's it's hard to keep the lines straight with the Danner family, um, but with his cousin who had been his stepdaughter, um, and eventually he also married her, and she became Iva Danner. Um, and at that point, that's when he left Kansas. Uh, there was Iva was in some trouble there. Um, I believe that she had stolen some items from a woman, and and there was the potential that she may have been pregnant from her uncle. Um, so she needed to get out of town and, and that's the first time he really leaves Kansas and then becomes kind of this migratory thing between Kansas, South Dakota and out to Montana and then back and forth for the next couple of, of decades. What was the age difference between the two? Uh, between Seth and his aunt, his aunt had been older and then between Seth and his stepdaughter cousin, that was quite a, quite an age difference. He we're not quite sure how old she really was. He ended up being forced to marry her in Dillon, Montana, or go to jail. Um, she had her baby the day after they got married, um, but we're still not sure that that was actually his child. But she said that she was about 18 then. We think it was probably more like 16, and Seth would have been in his mid, uh, mid to late 30s at that point. He was a very imposing man, physically, extremely strong. Yes, definitely. We've heard a lot of stories that he could just pick up a car and, you know, work on it or whatever. But yeah, he, and you can tell in the pictures, he was a very um, physical person. He, his jobs always entailed being pretty physical, whether as a mechanic or working on farms in the threshing season, um, things like that, that he definitely uh, was outside all the time and constantly working with his hands and his body. And he was part Native American? Yeah, and I've, I've had a hard time tracking some of that down, but that's, that's what everyone said. Um, it definitely came up a lot in the newspapers here locally when he was first uh, picked up, um, because of course that was, that was something that was looked down upon then. Um, but I haven't been able to verify completely uh, where that line may have come in, it's he's been pretty hard to to follow back much further. So, who were the Sprouses, and how did Seth Danner come to meet them? Yeah, so Seth uh, was working as a mechanic in South Dakota, and at the same place, Mister Sprouse uh, was also working. Um, I think he was a bit more in the kind of the booking slash financial realm a little bit more. He wasn't as handy mechanic-wise as Seth was, but they worked together there. Um, we don't know exactly how long they knew each other, um, but it, it seems like a, a good year or so. And Iva, Seth's wife, didn't really meet them a whole lot until it was time for them to uh, go west and um, so how that all happened is Seth decided to make his, his usual kind of in, in certain seasons, they would just kind of head out. And he, he told Iva, you know, we're going to meet this couple, the Sprouses, and who you've kind of met, you know, and we're going to we're going to travel with them. And so the Sprouses were 
a little bit older. They were in their um, 40s at that time. So they were a little bit older than Seth. And they didn't have any kids, although they'd both been previously married and did have children by those marriages. They didn't keep the children with them. So they also did a lot of the kind of back and forth. Um, they had spent some time actually in Oregon, uh, Washington area. So that that whole road in between all these states was pretty common for people to travel looking for jobs. So they decided to travel west with them and things seemed fine for most of it. They would just kind of stop along the way and they camped beside each other. Every once in a while, they'd lose each other if um, somebody had car trouble or, you know, things like that. Um, neither of them had a whole lot of money starting out at all. They just had their belongings with them. The Danner family, actually, they had uh, two children with them at that point, and or two from the marriage of Iva and Seth. And then uh, they also had Iva's sister, stepsister with them. So Seth had a daughter with his aunt, um, Florence. So they had all of them in one truck and then the Sprouses in another truck. And they just headed out west and um, ended up in Central Park, Montana, pulled off the road, probably just a camp like they had anywhere else that they'd gone along the way and decided that it, it was a good place to try some trapping. And um, they ended up staying for a, about a month and a half there. Yeah, it's a fascinating existence. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Yeah. Two families basically owning nothing more than their cars and their, their clothes on their backs, mm-hmm. staying at campgrounds, hunting and fishing to, to get by. It's a very meager, simple existence. Definitely. And I always like try to remember how in Montana and some of the, the states out here, the Great Depression hit um, about a decade before it did anywhere else in the United States. So I feel like they are a product of some of that in that they, you know, they were the, that, that kind of typical thing that you think of when you think of the Great Depression and people like heading west, trying to find jobs and just stopping anywhere that they can, camping together outside. Um, they're kind of like the, the beginnings of that. Yeah. And just so there's not confusion, because it's a tiny bit confusing, there are two Florences, Right. Yes. Yeah. To make it even more confusing. Yeah. So there's um, Florence Danner, who is Seth and his his aunt's daughter. Um, She was about 10 to 12 or not quite sure, somewhere in there um, at the time that they were at Central Park. And then you have Florence Sprouse, um, Mr. Sprouse's wife. So it does make it very confusing. So at some point in this road trip together at this camping site in Montana, Mm-hmm. The Danners leave the Sprouses behind. Where do the Danners go from there? They actually didn't go very far, which I think is quite interesting. So one November day, unbeknownst to other people, of course, but once we know the real kind of story, the Sprouses are are killed. And they leave, so the Danners leave that area, and they go oh gosh, probably only about 10 miles at most away from there and end up staying in Three Forks, Montana for the next four, about three or four years. And to me, that seems a little odd if you had really murdered people and you've been, you've been moving your whole life to decide to 
set up roots 10 miles from where these people are. It's quite interesting. But no one is really investigating the disappearance of the Sprouses. No one suspects that they were murdered, right? They are just gone. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm not even sure anybody would have noted that they were even missing at that point. I know that some people knew that there were these these people camped down there, but nobody had really talked to them a whole lot. It doesn't come out until the trial, the very few amounts of conversation they had with anybody in the area. So yeah, nobody would have missed um, them from that area at all. They probably would have just thought they'd moved on. So in the meantime, Iva and Seth continue to live together, but it's not anything even remotely close to marital bliss, is it? Yeah, not at all. They they definitely lived in poverty, extreme poverty in Three Forks. The kids didn't have shoes most of the time, would walk to school and, and freeze their toes and um, local community members would try to, to help out. Seth did drink. It was kind of that, that time period too. But and of course it's it's also during prohibition, so that's that's a big a big no no. Um, but they did have a lot of arguments, um, things like that. And and in that time, Iva became connected with with some of the locals there. Some of the women, of course, wanted to lend a helping hand. Um, but there was a gentleman, one gentleman in particular, who ended up at the house quite a bit and caused a lot of issues with jealousy between Seth and his wife, Iva. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of lot of tension, and um, those those poor kids they just they didn't have a lot of help. Um, in that time, they also had one more child, so they ended up having three kids together. Was was that Jim the baker? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and they really do call him that in the the court transcript, which I I think is great. <laughs> Real name uh, Jim Truglia. I think, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. He was an Italian man. And I think that's probably one of the biggest beefs that Seth had with him is that he was Italian. Um, He didn't like that. But definitely there was something going on between the two of them. Um, As the trial came to a close before Seth had even been executed, um, she remarried and married Jim the Baker. So, I mean, if Iva and Seth had just gone on living their lives quietly. John Sprouse's brother, Frank, might have grown suspicious. He, he eventually comes to town after the news breaks to, to learn more. But nobody suspected them of doing anything to the Sprouses. So how did they go from living their regular lives to Seth being put in jail? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Um, because honestly, if Iva hadn't said a word, we nobody would have ever found the Sprouses. Or if they did, they wouldn't know who they were. Um, it all would have been kept a secret, I think, pretty much forever. So how it comes about is in the spring of 1923, Seth is arrested for on a moonshine charge. And back and during that time period, I am always amazed at uh, the fines for moonshine, it is actually pretty steep. And he had been with this other guy named Seagraves, who had been a repeat offender. And Seth had been in jail prior to this a couple of times. 
um, not necessarily in this area, but elsewhere. And so he is brought in and C. Graves pleads guilty and, you know, serves his time and he gets off. And But in a search of Seth's house, they find, and property, they find um, some auto parts that had been stolen. And so he was then facing a grand larceny charge and looking at a couple of years in Deer Lodge, Montana. The judge took pity on him because he saw his family and their situation. And he must have seen something good in Seth, I think, to to do this. But he put him on probation and said, you know, you get a job in Bozeman. And if you do well, you can provide for your family and eventually you can buy a house. He just, he was really supportive of Seth, which I think is interesting. Um, most likely the grand larceny charge is due to Seagraves having hid those stolen items on the Danner property. Um, so there's a pretty good chance Seth didn't do that either. Um, but while, while he's on um, in Bozeman, he is allowed to visit his wife every once in a while in Three Forks. Um, it's quite a ways. Uh, it's about 30 miles out, 20 to 30 miles out. And during that day, all he had was a motorcycle. So you're looking at a good hour, hour and a half ride out to visit his wife. So most often they would write letters back and forth. And we don't have many of those letters. There's one that was printed in the newspaper after the trial that looked pretty suspicious. But for the most part, they didn't they didn't really see each other. So I believe it's during this time that Iva starts talking maybe to Jim the Baker, maybe to other women in the area, and starts alluding to something that she knows that had happened. And most likely this all comes comes to a head when Iva is found at this party um, at a neighbor's house, and Jim the Baker is at the party too. And it didn't look good. And so I believe that she was worried that word was going to get back to Seth. And um, I don't know if she's worried for her physical safety, if she was worried that he would leave her. Um, I'm not quite sure where that lies. Or if she did actually commit the crimes, maybe she was worried that he was going to come forward. But that's when things change quickly. And uh, she ends up going to the Three Forks police first um, and tells them her story. And they they did take it seriously. They went out to the area without her and looked around, didn't find anything. Um, she was pretty persistent. And so they went again, again, nothing. And then that's when the Three Forks um, police decided that they needed some some help. And so they, they called in the Gallatin County Sheriff and they ended up meeting Iva and the Three Forks police out at the actual site. And that's when they, they were able to discover the bodies because Iva could point right to where they had been buried. Um, and the, it, they found a, a leg bone right away, came to the surface where they dug. And and that kind of starts it all off. Um, prior to that, nobody really knew a whole lot about the Danners. Locally, people, obviously, the people who were helping them would have known them. But Otherwise, they were they were kind of nobodies, and overnight they become a pretty big big deal in the area. Right. So, how did Iva say that Seth committed the murders? Yeah. So she her story actually never changes at all. Um, she's she kind of just sticks to this this one line. But according to her, John Sprouse had gone out 
to do check his trap line like they had always done. And Seth went out with him and only Seth came back. And they waited for um, John Sprouse to come back that evening. Seth just kept saying, well, you know, I, I saw him out there, but we split up and I don't know where he's at. And Florence began to get panicked, um, wondering where her husband was. And as night came on, she got a little too panicked, um, kept questioning where he was at. And that's when, um, according to Iva, Seth hit Florence over the head with uh, the blunt part of, back part of an axe. And Florence didn't die right away. She was unconscious for quite some time. She never regained consciousness, according to that story. And they put her in the tent and eventually she died. Um, in one kind of instance or, or version of it, he tied a string around Florence's neck to suffocate her. That's one part that Iva sometimes didn't say um, consistently, but but that's basically the story. And uh, according to Iva, the whole thing came about uh, as as a robbery that Seth had wanted um, money that that John had had and, and material things, and so he he shot him with a shotgun when they were out trapping. But as you know, as we kind of know from from looking at the history of them, neither of them really had a whole lot of money. So I'm not quite sure that's a, that's makes a whole lot of sense, but she stuck by that story. Yeah, that, that's a really odd motive. Because as you write in your book, John Sprouse had actually borrowed money from Seth Banner. Mm-hmm. He didn't even have the funds to fix his car when it broke down during their trip. Yes, yeah, exactly. And, and was still owed him that money um, at that time when he was killed. So yeah, it doesn't quite quite square up to me. Um, he, they were found with a lot of Sprouse's items in their house, uh, you know, years later. Um, but to me, you know, if somebody's already dead and and you're kind of destitute like they were, I, I, it makes sense to me that Seth would take everything that they had. They obviously weren't going to use it because they were dead. So it does that them having Sprouse's things doesn't to me signify that it was necessarily the motive. Um, I think it was an afterthought. That's true. They did take his car, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Items of some value, but likely no cash money. Yeah. So how does Danner handle these accusations? Does he confess to police? No, he definitely does not handle it well. I imagine he's been obviously pulled into jail many times in his life. So I think he probably had some issues with authority and such. Um, but he he denies having seen the Sprouses since South Dakota, which was really the biggest mistake that he used um, in his whole case. He shouldn't have, have said that because they were pretty quickly able to prove that, of course, they had been with the Sprouses in Central Park. So he he denies for quite some time and then latches on to a story Florence's former husband had been after the Sprouses because, as it turns out, um, John and Florence had actually run away. And we're, it's unclear if Florence actually got a divorce from her former husband or not. And it, has, it was uh, verified that Florence was scared of her husband. So this mystery man kind of comes into to Seth's stories for quite some time, which, of course, is, is pretty easy to, to break as well. 
doesn't quite make sense. And he's, he's pretty much kept in jail from then on. Um, from that moment, when they first bring him in, he isn't released again. Um, so from June of 1923 until the next summer of July of 1924, he does not leave that jail except to go to the courthouse for, for the trial. So he, he at first seems pretty cavalier about everything and thinks, he, of course, he's going to get out. He like works out in front of the other prisoners like to show how strong he is. And he just doesn't seem to care a whole lot about what is happening other than that he he tells everyone you know his wife is lying and doing him wrong you know and uh brings out a lot about her kind of in the beginning but he doesn't tell the the real story um that he ends up putting as a statement that they tell at the trial which i think could potentially be the real story until he's rather forced to later on in in that year and in the meantime, John Sprouse's brother arrives, and he has a very interesting confrontation with him in the jail. Yeah, yeah. So when Frank first arrives, because he, of course, is notified of all of this, and I'm pretty, I feel like they knew something was up. They hadn't heard from his brother in three years. That's a very long time. So when he arrives, um, of course, he knows Seth. They had met previously one time, I believe. And Seth stretches out his hand to like shake his hand and, and, and be really cordial. And Frank's like, no, <laughs> no, I'm not shaking your hand. And that, that kind of sets, I think, part of the, the mood as well. And, and how people view Seth is that, you know, he, he didn't seem to really care about what people might think if he had really committed these murders. He just kind of pretended like the whole thing wasn't real. Um, which obviously to to John's brother it was very real, and so Frank actually spends some time here um, in Bozeman doing some research, and then continues on to a uh, Washington area to try to see if there is any information there about the what it maybe had happened about her, Florence's former husband, things like that, and and I think pretty much comes back empty-handed from there. He returns to South Dakota and then comes back again, actually with John's mother. In, in tow, and, and they come back for the trial and testify there. So one of the items that was found in the Danner home was Frank Sprouse's knife, right? Yes, yeah. Which he had picked up overseas during World War One, and he had given it to his brother. Yeah, which I think that was, that was definitely something at the trial that, I mean, it made it definitively that Danner had taken it. So, and I feel like that's one of the biggest parts of the case is, is kind of disproving that whole idea that Seth said he hadn't seen them since uh, South Dakota. And um, if that's why I keep thinking if he hadn't said that at the beginning, things would have been different. But having said that, the court having heard his first statement where he said that he hadn't seen them, and then having that evidence come up that he has his knife that he had headed out west with is is pretty damning evidence that something had occurred or that he at least robbed John Sprouse, um, which in light of the murder, of course, and, and the motive of robbery isn't isn't looking good. Um, but that was that was kind of a big point um, at the trial. It was was discovering all these items, identifying all these items. I think also to people on the jury, it probably made the Sprouse's 
into people, like real people. Because up to that, I mean, nobody knew them. It wasn't like uh, somebody who'd lived in town forever, you know, old Bozeman family. Most people had never met them. So they're kind of, they're, they're not real. I think for most of the trial, except for people who knew them, like the Sprouse family members that came for the trial. But to everybody else, these people weren't really real, which puts a lot of the focus then on Seth. But bringing those items forward, that that does make them into real people and those stories of, of like the knife, which are, are like important family stories. It, it just kind of brings that home that these were real people. One of the, the figures in this story who probably had information that, that would have helped expose the truth in all of this was little Florence, right? Who was at the campsite when all of this happened? Do you believe she saw anything? Yeah, I, I think she did. Um, I think she definitely saw something. She uh, was about the age of 10 when this occurred, old enough to know kind of maybe what was going on, definitely old enough to have been picking up on kind of the marital issues that may have been happening between between the families. Just that tension, I think she would have known about. But she did see something happen, um, whether it be Iva, which... I could tell that story, kind of Seth's version of it. But either she saw Iva hit Florence with the axe in self-defense, or she saw her dad, Seth, kill Florence. Either way, I, I think it would have been such a shock. She may have just been so traumatized that I wonder if, if she did see something, if she doesn't remember exactly what had occurred. Things would have been very confusing. In either case, either her dad or her mom would have been telling her, like, don't talk about what you saw. You didn't see what you thought you saw. It would just be a lot, I think, for a 10-year-old to, to take in. But I think it's there. I think I, I always wonder about, like, you know, hypnosis or something, if that would have brought something out from her, because I, I'm absolutely sure that she saw something. We just don't know exactly what it was that she saw. And at the trial, she was um, unable to talk about it. She just kind of completely shut down, cried on on the stand, and and just was so upset that they didn't really get anything out of her, unfortunately, and had to stop questioning her because it it was so uncomfortable for her. So can you talk about the defense's strategy? What did they do to counter the argument made by the prosecutor that Seth Danner had been the one who had committed the murder? To tell you the truth, they didn't do a whole lot. They basically just used Seth's statement that was taken a couple months after the first one, um, where he told his version of events. And it's really interesting because you get to to the last part of, of the case and you expect you know, the defense to, to pull in their witnesses and everything. And they say, we don't have anything. We're just going with the statement that Seth made. And they decided not to put Seth on the stand on his own behalf. I think, I'm not sure if they, they thought he just wouldn't be able to represent himself very well or, or exactly, or if they just like tear him apart when, if they got him up there. So they just went with the statement. And I think that they did put up as good a fight as they could. They, you know, the defense attorney did go back to South Dakota to ask some questions and he did some, some legwork, but he also was just, just part of the, the county's defense. He was not paid very well 
for this case because he, Seth couldn't afford uh, to have anyone. So I, I think there are some shortcomings in that. I think Seth's statement is, I, I don't, I think it, it makes a lot of sense, but in light of you imagine all of the evidence coming from the other side, um, some very strong language against him because Rankin was actually the, the uh, prosecuting attorney and he would have been uh, very eloquent in being able to say how horrible Seth was. So they were, they were up against a lot, no matter how much truth I feel is in Seth's statement, it wouldn't have been enough against everything that was coming from the other side days of, of the prosecution um, hammering him before, before they got to his statement. After this brief break, Seth Danner tells his own shocking version of the Sprouse murders. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And back again. So what was Seth's account of those fatal events at the campsite. Yeah. Um, it's actually one of my favorite parts of the whole case was, was realizing that the statement was told in full um, in the court transcript, which we have a copy of. And it's, it's the, the most that we ever get to hear from Seth in general. Uh, he just, he didn't get to talk a whole lot. We don't have a lot of letters or anything. So to be able to, to really hear what he was saying and the way that he would have spoken was was pretty awesome. But according to his statements, there had been some issues with Iva's fidelity during their marriage. And at some point her and John Sprouse had gotten together. Um, and it was he said that um, John had actually found sorry, Florence had found John and um, Iva in the brush together and had gotten pretty upset about it. And so John and Seth had talked about a way that they could, I guess, split peacefully. 
because they knew that this wasn't going to work out in light of that. And so they they decided to kind of like split all the money. Um, Seth said, what's mine is yours and, and we'll just make a clean break of it and you'll go your way and I'll go my way. And that'll, that'll be that. And so that was kind of the plan. Um, but before they were able to leave, John went out to check his trap line with his wife, Florence. According to Seth, Florence must have, have killed John and then come back to go after Iva. Seth would have been out checking his lines and just happened to kind of come back with his daughter, Florence, with him. Um, she must have like met him probably every day, I'm guessing, when he went to check lines, things like that. Um, but they, as they headed into the camp, there was Florence, the Florence Sprouse, and Iva having a fight. Florence had pulled a gun on Iva. It hadn't fired because the gun had been been dropped before and it, and it wouldn't it didn't always fire properly. And so in between that and Iva knew that she needed to defend herself. So she had hit Florence with the ax and Seth had tried to get the gun away from Florence. And, and to me, this is one of the most interesting points that Seth notes that the part of the trigger mechanism gets caught on Florence Sprouse's hand and almost rips off her finger as he's trying to get it out of her hand so she won't shoot. And that's, just an interesting, like who puts that into a story? I feel like it must have really happened. And he gets the gun away from her, but it's it's too late because Iva had already hit her. Um, it takes quite some time before Florence actually dies, just like in, in the other story as well. She never really regains consciousness. And then Seth, unknowing like exactly what had occurred, follows Florence's tracks out to where he, he finds John dead. And so that kind of to him tells the whole story of what had occurred. According to him, he wanted to turn this whole thing in and say, you know, Iva, it was self-defense. You have nothing to worry about. Um, she absolutely refused. Uh, I think the biggest thing she was worried about is having to talk about her infidelity with John. Uh, so she didn't want, she didn't want to have to go through any of that. So she asked Seth to bury them. And so Seth at night buries them outside of the tent and, and they, they move on, but uh, you know, still the the issues with their marriage continue despite that. And that to me makes a lot more sense. So when you look at the two motives, you have robbery, which in light of hardly any money there doesn't make a whole lot of sense, or the other one in terms of infidelity and, and all these issues, which we see happens again and again with Iva throughout their history together. So to me, that makes makes a lot more sense, and his details are, are really interesting. And, and unless he was an incredible storyteller, it, to me, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you make a very good case. But if Ivo was responsible for it, she never faced a, a court of law. She was never punished at all. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think Seth, in that, if that's all true... Seth definitely was trying to protect her at the beginning somewhat. And then when he realized that she's just going to throw him under the bus, I think he gave up and he wasn't going to come back and attack her. He was just going to take it and, and let her go. I think he really did love her. He raised her from a baby, really, which is kind of bizarre, but he, he was always there. And then when he married her, he was always there. So I think it would have been hard for him to, to really turn her in. But yeah, we'll, we'll never really know. Supposedly on her deathbed, there's a legend that she did confess 
to that story to to uh, to having done it in self defense, um, but we'll never know. So unfortunately for Seth Danner, things do not go his way during the trial, and it doesn't take a long time for the jury to deliberate, does it? Not at all. Um, they they did struggle a bit with basically what was going to happen to Seth. There was no doubt of his guilt. Um, all the votes they took were unanimously guilty. Um, there were just some people who weren't quite sure that they were okay with um, execution uh, being being what was going to happen. Um, part, I think mostly because it's the first time that this new sheriff would have to actually carry through with something like this. And in a small town, everybody knew him. And so when they asked him, like, are you, is this going to be okay? Would you be okay with carrying through this sentence? And he said, yes, that's when they were like, okay, that's what we're going to do. And there ends up being uh, an appeal process um, locally, which doesn't work out. And then to the Supreme Court of Montana, um, which also doesn't work out. So it would be the following summer that he would be executed. How, how did he handle himself in jail? Did he keep a positive outlook? Or was there some depression involved as he realized his inevitable fate? He surprisingly seemed to be pretty positive. I don't know how much of it is he just didn't believe it was really going to happen. Um that he thought something like he, he always like talked about his luck, like, Oh, my luck's going to come through and it won't happen. And for the first execution date in January, it didn't happen because they ended up appealing to the Supreme court of Montana. So he received a stay of execution, but he knew that was coming. So I don't think that there was a lot of emotional buildup and actually thinking he was going to die in January. But after that, so when he realizes that that's, you know, it's it's not going to happen. And the second execution date is set for July. He, for the most part, still kind of believes that something is going to come his way and, and change his luck until basically that, that last month. And then things change quite a bit. Um, he spends a lot of time talking to the guards. For me, that's one of the most fascinating parts of this case is these the guards and the sheriff and everybody who worked at the jail spent a lot of time with Seth. He was like the longest prisoner they'd ever had there. So I would imagine some bonds had been formed. I think there were some jailers who just thought he was ridiculous and they they thought he was lying most of the time in terms of like how he was holding up and being so positive and everything. But it's just interesting for me to, I wish I could he- talk to those people and, and see what, what Seth was really like. Um, but during that last month, things did kind of get more somber. He um, wrote a lot about religion and they published some of those in the local paper. Um, his sister came and visited him, which was pretty cool. And they hadn't seen each other since they were kids, um, but she managed to come and see him. And that's, that's pretty powerful, but and maybe part of that like time period is when it really kind of hits him that he really is going to die. But uh, yeah, for mo- for the most part, he was it was always thinking something else was going to pull through. I didn't think he he really thought it was going to happen. Based on his his final words, it sounded like he was at peace with himself. Yeah, definitely. And actually, those words I think bring me a lot of peace as well in in walking 
you know, next to where he died every day is knowing that he was, he was gonna, he was okay with it. Um, there was nothing really much more for him to live for here is what he believed that, you know, his life hadn't ever been that great. He never had really been happy. Um, but he'd found some sort of happiness in, in religion and, and believing that there was going to be another place to go, you know, once, once he was executed. So it, it does bring me a lot of peace, those last words. And, and I think it, it did, it, I think it made it easier, but also harder for the people who actually did have to be there and have to execute him. Because uh, I think a lot of people were worried that when it came time, he was going to break down and, and nobody really wanted to see that. But to, then to also hear somebody go so calmly, I think is like, I don't know, maybe people started to wonder, like to doubt that maybe he'd really done it. Um, and I think that would have been hard, hard to take too. Right. Do you feel a, a personal connection to him? Definitely. Um, when I first started writing the book, first couple months of writing it, I, I thought I was going to have to call up my publisher and say, I can't, I can't write this because I'd been so excited. I was, I was really into it. And then I started having nightmares um, almost every night. And I, I would be trying to get out of the jail before about 219 when he was executed. And I, he was never there, but I was just, I was trying to get out. I didn't want to be there when it happened. And I'd wake up and it would be about two o'clock. Um, and it, it just, it was, a, it was a lot for me. I was like, this stuff doesn't happen. This is kind of creepy. Um, so that was hard for me. And, and uh, like I said, I almost stopped writing, but I, I just like wrote during the day and tried to like not think about it at night. And then I came across, uh, you know, his version of the story and I typed that out, um, got that on paper, like, all right, this is part of the book. This is, this is what he said happened. And I never had a nightmare after that. Um, and so for me, it felt like this story needed to be told and that his version of what happened needed to be told. And for me, that, that room isn't scary or oppressive or anything anymore, the way that I thought of it when I first started working there. Um, for me, it's, it's a place of peace because I, I feel like maybe something's at rest now. I don't know. I'm not sure how much I believe in all that, but it, I definitely had some odd kind of experiences. So um, for me, I'm, I'm so glad that I was able to write it. And at the book release last year, I was able to, to meet his, his granddaughter um, and great grandson. And that was amazing. Um, and they're, they were really grateful for having his story told and, and learning more about him because all of the kids have been sent to orphanages. They just didn't know a whole lot about their history. So to be able to share that was amazing. And it it feels like a, a good thing that I was able to write this and, and get, you know, what happened on paper. But um, yeah, I definitely do feel, feel a connection though. We talk to him all the time in the museum just because, I don't know, <laughs> like, I guess that's what you do in an old building. <laughs> do you believe the building is haunted? Uh, I don't really think so. I've never had anything too terrible, but you know, I just, I just chat with Seth just in case, <laughs> keep him happy. We always joke that we played Johnny Cash or whatever in there because we think that's the kind of music he would have enjoyed. <laughs> well, the cool thing is that people can swing through Bozeman, an absolutely beautiful city. They can stop by the museum, see you, and even get an autographed 
copy all that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I I love talking about it. We actually we did a, a bigger exhibit um, because I had all this information where we we really talk a lot about the uh, influence of of the press and newspapers in his case and. Um, how he was kind of villainized in a lot of them. It does tell the story in an interesting way because you get these really flashy, scary headlines about Seth. But I also tell like the story in terms of what I kind of believe happened and um, how he was wrong. So to see those two together is really fascinating. And then to stand in that room and see exactly where it actually happened is it's pretty powerful. Um, and yeah, I love talking about it. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Like I mentioned to you when we were talking before we began recording here, I find myself driving between Minnesota and Oregon quite often. I've gone through Bozeman more times than I can count, so I can't wait to stop by and see your museum, hopefully this summer. Would you mind sharing some touristy information about your museum in case I have some listeners interested in visiting in person? Yeah, definitely. Um, we are reopening June 1st of this year. We've been closed the last year, um, partially due to COVID. We are a volunteer base was in the older <laughs> realm. And so we just wanted to protect people. And it's given us a chance to redo all of our exhibits during this past year. So June 1st, we'll be unveiling pretty much a new museum. We've redone almost all of the exhibits. So if anybody's been there before, it's going to be brand new. Um, and we're, we're open uh, usually Tuesday through Saturday um, and 11 to 4 um, most days. Uh, we do take uh, Sundays and Mondays off. Um, but we also have a, a great research center. And so uh, people who have local families or have some kind of Bozeman connection can come in and um, we take appointments and you can come in and and research your family. Um, that's one of our, our most, one of the things that's most used at the museum is that. Um, but definitely if you're visiting, uh, I'd say a, a good, good hour and a half, two hours to go through the museum. Some people definitely take a lot longer. There's a lot to see and read and, and we love talking, you know, with people as well. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a fun place. It's kind of a hidden gem. And again, people can buy the book directly from the museum but of course, they can also buy it online as well and in bookstores. Yes. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for spending some time with me here today. Yeah, this has been great. I've, I really enjoyed being able to, to share Seth's story. So we forgot to mention during the interview that Kelly Hartman has a website as well. Again, besides being an author and a museum curator, she is an artist. And you can find some really lovely Montana-inspired gifts for sale. Designed by her at mountainstudio308.com. And once more, her book is called Murder on the Yellowstone Trail, The Execution of Seth Danner. Again, this has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I am Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.